This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news. Coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Ted Nugent is coming to Madison tomorrow, and he wants to kill some Sandhill Cranes. The Once Upon a Time rock star and current conservative rabble-rouser will be speaking at the state capitol tomorrow in support of a Republican-authored package of hunting bills. The Wisconsin Sporting Freedom Package would, among other things, establish a Sandhill Crane Hunt and permit concealed carry of firearms without a license. Sandhill Cranes are a protected species in Wisconsin. Nugent is appearing as the official spokesperson for Hunter Nation, a Kansas-based lobbying group that is backing this hunting proposal. Hunter Nation is the same group that successfully sued the Department of Natural Resources over this past winter's wolf hunt. That, loot, that lawsuit kicked off a frantic and roughly three-day hunt in February that ended with hunters blowing well past the state's wolf quota. Hunter Nation is also involved in several ongoing lawsuits over next month's wolf hunt, reports the Wisconsin Examiner. A conservative think tank is challenging Governor Tony Evers' decision to exclude the group from press briefings. The Associated Press reports that the think tank asked the U.S. Supreme Court last month to take up the case. Lower courts have said that Evers' actions are legal. The challenge stems from a 2019 lawsuit filed by the John K. MacGyver Institute for Public Policy, which argued that Evers violated its writer's constitutional right to free speech and freedom of the press. Former Governor Scott Walker, represented by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, filed a brief today in support of the group's challenge. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that nearly half of Eau Claire's city wells have been shut down because of concerns over PFAS contamination. PFAS is a family of manufactured chemicals that are found in firefighting foam and other everyday products. They've been linked to a number of adverse health effects. The DNR believes that the Chippewa Valley Regional Airport is the likely source of Eau Claire's contamination, as airports are a common source of PFAS contamination. PFAS pollution in Madison has been linked back to the Dane County Regional Airport, and extensive pollution on French Island on the Mississippi River likely comes from the La Crosse Regional Airport. A Republican-authored package of affordable housing bills is facing pushback from local leaders. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the proposal's supporters say that the eight bills would cut regulations, reform outdated housing practices, and increase affordable housing. But several municipalities and county organizations say that the new rules would impose unnecessary mandates on local governments. One of the bills would give the state authority over where unhoused people can establish campsites. Since its launch on September 1st, Madison's crisis response team has responded to nearly 40 calls for service, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The Community Alternative Response for Emergency Services, or CARES, program sends paramedic and mental health crisis workers to certain 911 calls. CARES is currently in its pilot phase and is only taking calls from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. on weekdays. The team also has a limited coverage area, responding to mental health emergencies in portions of central Madison between Park Street and the Yahara River. A city committee has recommended that Madison continue adding fluoride to its drinking water. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the Technical Advisory Committee was established by Madison's Water Utility Board, and its primary members are retired scientists. The committee voted 2-1 to one at its meeting yesterday to continue endorsing the current fluoride level of 0.7 milligrams per liter. One member of the committee was exempted from the vote. 
Proponents of fluoridation argue that the process is a safe and an important preventative health measure, particularly for communities without access to dental care. But opponents argue that risks to developing brains in young children outweigh the benefits. The World Health Organization, the American Medical Association, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and Public Health Madison and Dane County have all endorsed water fluoridation. And now, here are your daily COVID-19 numbers, courtesy of the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. The state's rolling seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases currently stands at 2,403. Meanwhile, more than 9,100 Wisconsinites are confirmed and suspected to have died of COVID-related complications since the pandemic began last spring. Currently, 17 counties have a critically high level of case activity. Dane County is one notch below that level and has a, quote, very high level of case activity. And now on to today's top stories. A bipartisan group of state lawmakers are floating a bill to address catalytic converter thefts. The proposal comes as thefts of the automotive part has spiked since the pandemic began. WRT producer Jonah Chester takes us from here. As of late September, there had been more than 300 catalytic converter thefts in Madison so far this year. That's more than double the number that were stolen in 2020, according to the Capital Times. Catalytic converters reduce the amount of toxic pollutants that are released by cars, and they're rife with valuable metals, which, combined with how simple the part is to remove, makes them a prime target for thieves. Now, a bipartisan bill is looking to address the issue, but not by punishing the thieves. Instead, the legislation would place the onus on car part dealers and scrap shops to identify and report stolen converters. Speaking at a legislative committee meeting in August, Senator Kathy Bernier, a Republican from Chippewa Falls and one of the bill's lead sponsors, explained how the rule would work. This bill attempts to de-incentivize the thefts by regulating the purchase and sale of catalytic converters. A scrap dealer must either receive evidence that establishes the seller as the lawful as lawfully possesses the catalytic converter or must document the sale and inform law enforcement that the sale occurred. Scrappers who violate the bill could face a fine of up to $1,000, imprisonment for up to 90 days or both. A second offense would warrant a fine of up to $10,000, imprisonment for up to nine months or both. Senator Lena Taylor, a Democrat from Milwaukee and one of the bill's co-sponsors, says that placing the responsibility on the dealers instead of the thieves is the best way to address the issue. It is another layer of responsibility that we are putting on small businesses to say, you won't accept stolen goods. You know, I wish I could do something on the criminal and know who was going to go do it so we could lock them up before they do it, right? Can't do that. Not psychic yet. According to the National Insurance Crime Bureau, a nationwide spike in catalytic converter thefts corresponds with the increasing price of the rare metals used in the parts. Palladium, rhodium, and platinum have all jumped in value since the pandemic began. In December 2020, the most recent month the NICB has available data for, there were more than 2,300 converter thefts across the country. In December 2019, there were only 578 reported thefts. Several groups have registered in support of the bill, and no lobbying groups have formally opposed the measure. Among those supporting the legislation is the Wisconsin School Bus Association, the union representing the state's school bus contractors. 
Speaking before lawmakers last month, Sherry Heim, the organization's executive director, said that school bus fleets were a prime target for catalytic converter thefts. It can demolish a whole fleet. They're often targets, school bus fleets are often targets because the school bus yards are an easy target. Thieves will boldly enter and quickly take what they're seeking without thought to the extensive loss to others. It can be removed within just a few minutes, as you heard. And then the cost to replace that catalytic converter is between $1,200 and $1,800 per bus. The bill has the support of lawmakers on opposite ends of the political spectrum. Both Democratic Representative Francesca Hong of Madison and Republican Representative Janelle Branchin of Menominee Falls are co-sponsors. The bill is up for consideration in both chambers of the legislature. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Earlier today, state lawmakers introduced the Birth Equity Act. This package of six bills aims to address racial inequalities among pregnant women and newborns. WORT reporter Nate Wegehout has the story. Representative Sheila Stubbs of Madison was joined by Milwaukee Senator LaTanya Johnson and others in a press conference this morning to introduce the Birth Equity Act. The Birth Equity Act includes six bills which seek to address the racial inequalities that black and indigenous pregnant women and newborns face. In 2018, Wisconsin's Department of Health Services reported that black women in Wisconsin were five times more likely to die from childbirth than white women, and black infants were three times more likely than white babies to die before their first birthday. Representative Stubbs says that this is unacceptable. Wisconsin is ranked one of the worst states in our nation for the maternal and health outcomes and the worst for racial disparities and infant mortality. Wisconsin is the worst place to raise a black family. In essence, it is one of the worst states in the nation for mothers of color and their children. The Birth Equity Act is not the first attempt to address Wisconsin's birth inequalities. The Healthy Women, Healthy Babies initiative was introduced in the 2021 state budget and would have set aside $28 million to give women greater access to cancer screens, STI testing, and provide healthier pregnancies. Senate Republicans removed it from the budget. The first bill in the Birth Equity Act would allow postpartum home visits for infants and mothers within seven days of being discharged from the hospital free of charge. The hospitals are not allowed to ask for payment from these visits and Stubbs says it allows both the mother and infants to have a proper recovery after childbirth. The second bill would require Medicaid to cover mental health screenings for mothers to help with postpartum depression. Katrina Morrison, the health equity director for the Wisconsin Alliance for Women's Health, says that women of color are more likely than others to experience postpartum depression. According to the CDC, Postpartum depression affects one in nine women. However, this condition does not affect all women equally and is often underreported. Women of color are at a higher risk of experiencing postpartum depression and are less likely to even be screened in the postpartum period. One study found that black and Hispanic women are twice as likely to experience postpartum depressive symptoms. The third bill in the Birth Equality Act would prohibit sales tax on all breast pumps, breast pump kits, breast pump storage, and collection supplies. Senator Johnson says that these bills are critical for the health and wellness of Wisconsin mothers. It is time, it is beyond time, that we make these infant mortality disparities non-existent 
there's no reason that a baby's lifespan should be decreased by the time that they're born simply because of their zip code, the color of their skin, or their economic status. That has to stop. And this legislation for so many African-American babies and their mothers is a matter of life or death. The other bills in the package would, among other things, provide financial aid to pregnant mothers to receive dental care and allow pregnant women to join an employer's health insurance plan, regardless of how long they've been pregnant. The bills are now in circulation to find co-sponsors. From WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Madison Public Library is launching a new program to elevate the stories and history of the Ho-Chunk Nation. The Library Storyteller-in-Residence program will run through mid-December and will feature discussions and events led by Andy Cloud, a Ho-Chunk storyteller and tribal member. For more about the program, WORT producer Jonah Chester spoke with Cloud and Nia D. Shaw, a community engagement librarian. So Andy, let's start out with you. Tell me about your new role and I guess broadly what the role of a storyteller in this context is. Sure. Well, the Storyteller, it's a program, um, to my knowledge, it was started in Vancouver and um, it highlights Indigenous people, well, with my, with my own story, my, my people, the Ho-Chunk people, who, you know, these are ancestral lands, actually the lower portion of Wisconsin. Um, and then we we originated in the Red Bank. So this program really, to me, I love stories. And I saw this opportunity and I applied and I was chosen by Mass Public Library. And um, I am just really excited to share our stories and share my stories, you know, growing up Ho-Chunk and going to school and kind of being in like dual world, you know, like two worlds. And so uh, I'm really excited. Yeah, Niyadi, let's uh, let's pass it over to you. Tell me a little bit about the uh, Madison Public Library's inspiration for this program. Uh, I believe Andy just mentioned it a minute ago, but this is sort of based on a similar program in Vancouver, correct? It is, yeah. So, a little while back, we did get some community feedback around Native American Heritage Month, basically just that, you know, Heritage Months are a beautiful way to highlight and celebrate, but how can we build on that on a more regular basis? 
Um, and there's not just one answer to that question, but we have been exploring. And yeah, Vancouver's model with doing a residency, it did kind of get us to a place where we could do more sustained engagement, ongoing opportunities for learning and connection, but then also tailor it for our community and to make it highly collaborative. So we were able to do that with the partnership of Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison and with Andy. All of the ideas and creative work comes from her and from Ho-Chunk guest speakers that are joining her. So tell me a little bit more about some of the programming you have for this residency. I understand from, from information you've put out, you've already got quite a bit planned. Uh, I'll toss that up for whoever wants to take it. Yeah, so we put out a call looking for a storyteller and we really didn't want to be prescriptive or, or have an idea, too many ideas in advance of what we wanted that to look like. We just knew that we wanted it to be really interactive um, and give the larger community just chances to learn um, and kind of reshape their own story of what Madison is. So again, a lot of these ideas did come from Andy. And I think with with COVID, it, it did shape also what the, the format would be. So she has a bunch of ideas that are like you know, just different ways that you can participate safely, whether you want to come in in person, there's virtual programs, there are take-home um, maker kits that kids can use at home, um, just displays set up at our libraries. There's just so many different ways. I feel like Andy can speak more to the specifics of that. But yeah, we just, we wanted to highlight Ho-Chunk culture, especially uh, during this time. We're not, we don't want to only do Heritage Month programs, like I said. But it does seem like this is a great time of year and good opportunity for people to get outdoors and come into our libraries and learn. Yeah, so I understand the first event of the residency, which is titled What is Ho-Chunk? An introduction. That's taking place this coming Thursday, October 14th at 7 p.m. That's going to be virtual. Andy, can you go ahead and take me, walk me through what that first introductory segment is going to look like? Sure. Um, when I thought about this program, it's my older sister. Well, in Ho Chunk way, kinship way, she'd be my older sister. Actually, you know what? She'd be my little mom. Sorry, that's my bad. But um, she is gonna talk about kind of like an overreaching kind of about what Ho Chunk is. So our ways, our kinship, uh, touching a little bit on uh, the past, the present, our government. So really, kind of just. Like a brief introduction, really, is is what she's going to do. Now, you mentioned there that I, and you described her as your, your little mother. Can you walk me through that? What's, what's that relationship look like? Sure. So, in our kinship, you're the uncles, which would be the mother's brothers. They're the uncles or they're the Degas. And in the Degas, that role, the uncle role or the Degas, is um, kind of a superior role and he's really close to his sister's kids like he's he's kind of the discipliner so his children that Dega piece so his sons will they'll also be Degas and and then their sons will also be Degas so it doesn't it doesn't drop to like a second cousin third cousin first cousin um, kind of familial relationship it goes right to the Degas, and then the girls that your Dega has, they're all little moms. They're all moms. So you call them nannies in our, uh, in our language, in our kinship system. So that's where she comes from because her dad, I'd call him Dega because he's on my, my mother's side, 
and it's kind of to be technically one of my mother's brothers. <laughs> I don't know if that's No, I, I can track that. And I'm assuming that's something I'd learn more about if I went to this Thursdays or, or one of the other, one of the other uh, sessions that you'll be hosting in the coming weeks. Yes, kinship is on the list. Got it. Uh, Andy and Yeti, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Those are all the questions I had prepped for you. Uh, but before I let you go, is there anything you want to add to the record about this programming, about what's coming up next? Anything at all we haven't had a chance to touch on here that you feel deserves airtime or that folks should know about? So when I was creating this program um, and what it would look like, I wanted it to be interactive, like Nancy said, um, and I also wanted it to be fun, and I wanted it to be uh, inclusive of all ages, not just adult, not just children or young adults, but everyone, like the whole family, um, because I think at the heart of everything Ho-Chunk is, it, it's the family kind of idea that, you know, there's everyone's close-knit, and you can find family basically everywhere you go. Always have a place to call home. That, I mean, she said it perfectly. I did just want to thank um, Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison, the Steve Stricker American Family Insurance Foundation, and the the Madison Public Library Foundation, because they're really helping to bring this to life. All right. Well, thank you, both of you, uh, so much for joining me this afternoon. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jonah. Thank you. Niyadi Shaw is a community engagement librarian with the Madison Public Library, and Andy Cloud is the public library's news storyteller in residence. You are listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call shares the latest from the UW-Madison campus. Wildlife Weekly rescues a colorful kestrel. And Radio Astronomy explains what it means for a galaxy to be fluffy. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison student newspapers, to get the latest news from campus. This week on Cardinal Call, the editorial team takes a closer look at the UW's new freshman class and outgoing Chancellor Rebecca Blank's new gig at Northwestern University. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. 
Today we're sharing part of our new podcast episode from the Student Dive Team. The university enrolled a record number of students this year. About a quarter of the class of 2025 are students of color, which is more than ever before. Students are also feeling the impacts of more freshmen on campus, especially in housing situations. Here to talk about this story is Claire Laliberte. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So this year was a record-breaking year for the size of UW's freshman class in general and for new in-state students as well, since 55% of the class is from either Wisconsin or Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So why do you think so many people enrolled this year? I think, for me personally, I was originally going to be a part of the class of 2024, but because of COVID, I took a year off, and I'm sure I'm not the only person that did that. Uh, A lot of people were less eager to come to college in general because of the online classes situation. And I think at this point, uh, graduating seniors this past year were excited to get out of their hometowns, get out of their bedrooms, get off of Zoom, and enroll in college. So I think more people wanted to experience that, and Madison's a great place to do that. Are you yourself um, an in-state student, or are you out of state? I'm not. I'm from Massachusetts, actually. Oh, nice. Um, nice. But my family is all from Montello, Wisconsin, which is a small Mm -hmm. town. They all live out here. And it's nice to be close to them. Very nice. Um, Can you explain a little bit more about what UW's uh, reciprocity program does for students? Yeah. So in Minnesota, uh, students receive something similar to the in-state tuition uh, amount if they come to Madison and vice versa if you are from Wisconsin and you go to the University of Minnesota. Um, So that is a big way that Madison draws students from Minnesota. And I believe about one in 10 students is from Minnesota here, which is pretty good numbers for a state that's not, um, you know, the state of the school. Uh, And yeah, that has aided a lot of people in being able to afford medicine. So is this a relatively new program or is it just the records, uh, the numbers were higher this year than normal? Um, The numbers were higher this year than normal is my understanding of it. I think that, like I said, people are eager to come to to college and Madison offers a really great all-around experience. Uh, what did the freshmen you talked to have to say about their experience so far? I was overall positive. I mean, obviously, n- not everything is perfect, but I think people were excited to be on campus, to be in person for their classes when they started sc- when they started college. Um, I talked to Neha Thalpur, who's an international student from India, and she chose Madison. She didn't really know a ton about it. Um, she chose it for its chemistry program, and I think she told me she was a bit nervous to move, you know, across the world to a place where she doesn't know anybody, but she's had a very good experience so far, although she does acknowledge that the dorms are pretty packed. Yeah, uh, for sure. So you mentioned that um, just under one in 10 freshmen are international students. Is that a record for UW this year? I'm not sure if it's a record, but I know it's a very high number. Do you think that number will increase as the years go on? I think that demand for UW abroad will always be high because it's a big school. It's in a mid-sized city. It offers great programs for a lot of um, things, especially STEM fields, which a lot of people want to come abroad to study. So yeah, I expect those numbers to go up, or at least I don't know how many international students UW will accept every year. I don't know if there's a limit to that, but I'm sure that applications will continue to rise. How has your own experience been as a freshman in the residence halls? Is it more crowded than you thought it would be? And do you think that um, the freshmen you talked to had similar opinions? Well, I'm in a triple. Um, which I'm in Chadbourne, which, as you know, has small rooms. Yeah. But I, um, I, we got put in the triple, which is like the den, like the common space off the lounge that got converted into a room. And I mean, I'm happy with it. It's pretty big and my roommates are cool, but yeah, I mean, you feel it like, you know, people on my floor have to go up a floor to use the kitchen, wash their dishes Mm -hmm. and stuff because our kitchen is blocked off. 
and also part of our room, so they couldn't really use it anyway. Oh, wow. But, yeah, I mean, I think it affects everybody, but I honestly don't think it's been that much of an issue. I think that, from what I've seen, the forced triples in those housing situations are actually pretty nice. Do most residence halls have um, forced triples now, or is this something that's sort of unique to Chadbourne and maybe like a few others? I don't know about most, but I've definitely heard from other people in other residence halls that either they're in the same situation or they know people who are. Mm. Um, I went on a triple in Leopold recently. It's enormous. It's bigger than ours. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I know that it's... uh, it's been done before, but this year definitely has the highest number of those situations. Is there anything else that you think readers should know about your story? Hmm. I think that it's important to acknowledge that even though we have come far as a university, we need to keep um, progressing because it's still the case for many of these students um, that they, you know, there are issues here, there are issues every, everywhere, and the university can make steps towards addressing those, and so can we as students. Um, I think that the especially what I talked about with Dan the indigenous experience here is overlooked the university press release with the demographic information didn't even mention indigenous students so I think that we can all make an effort to be a little bit more conscious thank you so much for being here Claire yeah of course in other campus news Chancellor Rebecca Blank will leave UW-Madison at the end of the academic year. She is headed to Northwestern University, where she said she will become the first female president in the history of the university. Blank has been with UW-Madison since 2013. She has the second longest tenure of any current Big Ten public school president or chancellor, according to UW. Prior to her post as chancellor, she worked in three different presidential administrations. She was a member of Northwestern's faculty as the director of the Joint Center for Poverty Research. Blank said that leading UW-Madison and serving the people of Wisconsin has been an honor and a privilege. The search for a new chancellor will also likely fall in line with UW System's search for a new president. Former Governor Tommy Thompson has been serving in that role as interim president since 2020. Effective October 4th, first responders from UWPD will be joined by mental health professionals from University Health Services when responding to a mental health crisis. The partnership was designed over the course of about a year, with input from the Associated Students of Madison, the UW-Madison BIPOC Coalition, and the Mental Health Services Student Advisory Board. The program will start running two days a week, with ASM hoping the program will expand to late nights and weeknights. ASM provided just over $3,000 in funding for transportation to hospitals if mental health professionals deem it necessary. The departments involved said they would continue evaluating the program and look at wrapping in the city's CARES model. Badgers legend Barry Alvarez was honored during the team's football game against Michigan. The former athletic director announced his retirement last year. Starting next season, the football field at Camp Randall will officially be called the Barry Alvarez Field, His name will be written in the corners of the field. During his time as a head coach from 1990 to 2005, he helped lead the Badgers to win three Rose Bowl titles. Wisconsin had only won nine football games in the four years prior to his arrival. At a ceremony, Chancellor Rebecca Blank said that Alvarez had an immeasurable impact on the campus and beyond in the state and in college sports. Alvarez, in a video, said he was touched and honored. During the Michigan game, he waved to the student section, which is chanting his name. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com or download our app. 
The story that you heard about today is one of three stories that we break down in our latest episode of The Student Dive that's available on our website, on Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. The American kestrel is the smallest member of the hawk family. Other than its diminutive stature, the species can typically be identified by its colorful coat of feathers. This week on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg shares the story of a kestrel that's currently in the care of the Dane County Humane Society's wildlife rehabilitators. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we're going to be talking about American kestrels, probably one of my favorite falcon species here in our state, and they are a kind of a rare visitor here at our wildlife center, but we happen to have one in care right now. And so I thought, oh, you know, it'd be fun to talk about kestrels and, you know, what they really mean to our state of Wisconsin, what their populations are like, and how you might identify them because they're they're very small and sometimes kind of hard to spot. So, you know, this kestrel that we have in care has been with us since uh, the end of September. It was actually found with a broken wing uh, on the roadside northwest of the DeForest area. And we found on an exam that it had a left ulna fracture. And an ulna is going to be part of a wing bone. Uh, it's not quite the finger bones and it's not the shoulder. It's kind of right near the elbow in that area. And it also incurred some kind of ocular trauma, meaning that there is trauma in the eyes that actually still hasn't resolved yet. So we're not really sure if this bird will be able to adequately see yet to be released. It just takes a very long time for trauma to really dissipate, especially when there's blood or what we call hyphema or fibrin in the eye itself. Um, that kind of damage can be really difficult and it can obstruct their vision. And as a raptor, because uh, this is a tiny raptor, it's got to have really good vision to be able to see. Did you know that American kestrels are one of the species that actually can see uh, or have been shown to proven to track rodents, one of their favorite foods, with UV light following their urine trails outside. So, you know, they're commonly hunting on roadsides. You see them all the time uh, perched up on phone wires or telephone or electrical lines. Um, and they're just hanging out looking for rodents and they will hover above them. So they fly up in the air, they hover, they follow the urine trails using their UV vision, uh, which is super cool. And then they dive for that prey, whatever, if it might be a mouse or they also eat things like grasshoppers and, you know, they'll actually go for a lot of different bugs like beetles and dragonflies and spiders, uh, but also your shrews and voles and even bats sometimes and small songbirds if they're very hungry. So um, it's kind of neat. They're uh, they're very um, good at what they do um, and they definitely like the open grassy areas. So one of the, the coolest things about the state of Wisconsin is that we have a kestrel monitoring program. It's called the Central Wisconsin Kestrel Research, uh, CWKR, and it was actually started back in 1968 by someone called Francis Hammerstrom, 
And if you have not heard of her, uh, it's actually an, um, uh, there's an amazing story. I, and I read their book uh, about her and uh, her husband, Frederick and Francis. Uh, it's called Mice in the Freezer, Owls on the Porch. I would highly recommend it. Uh, it's a book about their life in the Stevens Point area. And it really started with preserving land, which helped the greater prairie chickens, but it also helped kestrels. And so for, you know, 40 to years or so, you know, they were monitoring nest boxes on what's called the Buena Vista grasslands, which is an incredible area in our state that I would highly recommend people go visit or check out. And so those nest boxes are monitored. And then the folks that are independently part of the Kestra Research Program actually banned those birds. So they're looking at population estimates and where the birds are uh, migrating to or, you know, how many come back year after year. And um, they also do some really great work at Goose Pond here in the Madison area. There's nest boxes being monitored there through the Madison Audubon. And so the reason we're, you know, been working with banders and with Madison Audubon is that we've had some of our rehabilitated kestrels banded. So if this bird is able to be rehabilitated, the plan is already in works to band. Uh, it's a beautiful male bird. It has that nice blue-gray and rusty orange body, and uh, it's not the, the drabish kind of brown with striping like the female is. This male hopefully would go back to its home territory, have a band put on, and the goal would then be to see if that bird comes back to breed um, either in this area or goes on somewhere for migration. So, you know, uh, the Wildlife Center here, we do band most of our birds. Um, we have a, uh, myself actually, one of the permitted banders here, bands all songbirds that are rehabilitated and released, and then uh, red-tailed hawks and herons. Uh, kestrels just happen to be one of the species that we don't actually band, so we'll be partnering with the, the folks with the Central Wisconsin Kestrel Research Network. And so uh, it really helps us get some data about whether the rehabilitation is successful especially if this bird, you know, having a wing fracture and eye trauma, does it survive and does it do well? But then also, you know, helping to preserve the species because of the decline of kestrels in general, which has been ongoing for, for a long amount of time, sadly. So, you know, we want to see that kestrels will thrive. We don't have uh, enough data necessarily to say, like, how every um, population of kestrels is. So the more that's banded, the more information that we'll get. And since they have been in population decline, uh, just in our state and throughout the U.S. in general, for sure, it's worth monitoring them to see um, how things are going. So um, if you want more information, I would definitely recommend folks uh, look at the wisconsincastrels.org website to check out the Kestrel Nest Box Monitoring Program, both through Madison Audubon with the Goose Pond and also the um, Central Wisconsin Kestrel Research. And then know that we are definitely available to help in situations with kestrels, whether you have nest box that you're monitoring on your property ever, especially in the spring, sometimes chicks, you know, if they become um, abandoned for some rare reason, you know, we will actually take those baby chicks and then have them banded and then wild foster them, uh, which means taking the babies and putting them in different nest boxes of alternate parents so that they can be brought up as real happy and successful <laughs> kestrels uh, that grow up with actual kestrels. So that's really important for us. Um, and otherwise, any adults that come in, we certainly are here to help if they're sick, injured, or orphaned with the hopes of getting them back out into the wild population. So our our goal is, is to help where we can and partner with those that we know about these really great opportunities. Um, so partnering with them is important. And uh, we hope that this was informative. Uh, be on the lookout for kestrels. They're still here and you'll still see them for the next couple of months even. Look on the phone wires, look on the electrical lines. You'll start to see them. Um, they're very, very cute. Uh, so we uh, hope you enjoyed this segment. And if you have any questions, give us a call at 
287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. When you think of Fluffy, chances are your thoughts immediately turn to kittens, puppies, and other furry friends. But did you know that certain galaxies can also be Fluffy? Although admittedly they're a lot less cute than a kitten or puppy. This week on Radio Astronomy, crew member Melissa Morris examined some fluffy galaxies. And a quick note before we blast off, this episode was pulled from the Radio Astro archives and originally aired in January. What is the fluffiest thing you can think of? Maybe it's a kitten or a puppy. Maybe it's a nice cozy blanket. But have you ever thought of a galaxy? Hello everybody and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Melissa Morris and today we're going to talk about yet another citizen science project called Space Fluff, where you can help astronomers look for some particularly fluffy galaxies. As a reminder, a citizen science project is a science project that anybody with an internet connection can help with. A large amount of modern astronomy relies on large amounts of data, most of which come from huge surveys of the sky. Some of these surveys allow us to monitor the changes in brightness of various stars or peer deep into space. Either way, this is far too much data for one single astronomer to look at. However, if hundreds or thousands of people were able to help analyze the data, it would be much more plausible. That's where everybody else comes in. Citizen science projects call on anybody with an interest in science to help analyze data. This could mean helping describe how galaxies look, or searching for planets orbiting around other stars. In Space Fluff, you can sign up to help astronomers find the fluffiest objects in the universe. Okay, fluffy may be a bit of a stretch, but these objects are still pretty interesting. They're scientifically referred to as low-surface brightness galaxies because they're incredibly faint compared to other galaxies, making them appear diffuse and, dare I say, fluffy. While some low-surface brightness galaxies can be nearly the size of our Milky Way, most of them are what astronomers refer to as dwarf galaxies, which are many orders of magnitude smaller than most galaxies. For example, if I weighed as much as the Milky Way did, then a typical dwarf galaxy would only weigh as much as a single feather. However, these small, low-surface brightness galaxies could help astronomers answer a huge array of questions pertaining to galaxy evolution and dark matter. First, let's talk about galaxy evolution. Astronomers are able to look at galaxies across cosmic time. The further away a galaxy is from us, the longer ago its light was emitted, meaning the further back in time we're able to look. This means that astronomers can see roughly what the universe looked like 
billions of years ago. By looking across cosmic time all across the sky, we can gain an understanding of how galaxies have changed over time in the universe. But there are still many questions about how those changes actually took place. For example, what causes a galaxy to change shape? Why does it stop forming stars? Does it depend on how many other galaxies are nearby? It turns out that a galaxy's properties heavily depend on where it is with relationship to other galaxies. There are a wide array of environments in space, from wide open voids that contain very few galaxies, to galaxy groups that contain tens of galaxies, to giant galaxy clusters that contain hundreds, sometimes thousands of galaxies. These wildly different environments lead to galaxies with wildly different properties. For example, galaxies and groups and clusters tend to form fewer stars, but what exactly is responsible for this? Could it be that the fuel for star formation is stripped from the galaxy by the dense cluster environment, or that galaxies are interacting with one another and unsettling the fuel for star formation, or could it be something else entirely? This is where low-surface brightness galaxies can come in. By studying them, astronomers can get a better handle on why they have such a low-surface brightness. From there, they can infer that these processes may also be affecting other galaxies in these environments as well, and thus give us a better idea of how these galaxies evolve. Now, another question these galaxies can help us solve pertains to dark matter, which is that mysterious stuff that makes up roughly 25% of the universe, but that we can only detect by seeing its gravitational influence on galaxies, clusters, and even light itself. Thanks to cosmological observations and simulations, we have a good idea of the overall makeup of the universe. However, while simulations that include dark matter do good jobs of replicating the universe we observe on the whole, there are a few key differences that have led to some serious tension. One of those is something astronomers deem the missing satellites problem. No, we're not talking about the satellites that orbit the Earth, we're talking about small galaxies orbiting larger ones like our Milky Way. You see, cosmological simulations of dark matter predict that there should be a large number of very small galaxies in the universe, but when we actually observe the universe, we don't necessarily see them. Or do we? Could these low surface brightness galaxies be evidence of the missing satellites that we just haven't been able to see until recently? By looking for and studying these galaxies, astronomers will be able to better answer these questions and understand the cosmology of our universe, as well as how galaxies can form. In Space Fluff, you, the citizen scientists, are charged with looking at images of objects in the Fornax Galaxy Cluster, which is one of the closest clusters to us. You'll get to look through these images and answer questions about the objects in them. Is this galaxy surrounded by other galaxies? What color is it? Is it fluffy? Your answers will then be combined with other answers from other citizen scientists and used to further exciting scientific discoveries. So, if you're still at home and looking for something fun to do, check out the Space Fluff Project at zooniverse.org and start doing some science today. That's all for Radio Astronomy this week, folks. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash radioastronomy for links to more citizen science projects, as well as weekly posts about all the things we discuss on the show. This is Melissa Morris signing off and wishing you a stellar week. 
And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Nate Weggehout. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. And Jolly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with Nuestro Patio. Good night.